0: This is the What Now podcast. As a black man, when you're around white people that don't know you, one of the things that you learn to do is to prove that you are non-threatening because it's such a sensitivity to that of what was being cast in the media, how violent black men can be, how non-trustworthy they can be, and etc. And so i found myself in situations where One of the first things I want to do in a new relationship is to show that I can be trusted and to behave in such a way that I'm non-threatening. That's the reality of what you have to deal with being black in America.
1: This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the stigma that surrounds cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a respectful, open, and honest way in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Robert Brown about his journey with racism as a Black member of the Church. Robert joined the Church when he was 14 while living on the south side of Chicago. Through the love and acceptance of his Ward family, he was able to change the course of his life, leading him to a college education and a promising career, while still dodging the fiery darts of racism. Robert talks about the reality of systemic racism, which he experiences almost daily, and offers advice for church members on how they can help reduce the stigma that surrounds people of color. I am here today with Robert Brown in an effort to discuss what it looks like to be a black man in our society and to help members of the church know how they can help. So Robert recently participated in a panel discussion with a Laguna Niguel State President in an effort to educate church members about the reality of racism. So I will be sharing some of Robert's quotes from that discussion today. So welcome, Robert. I'm so glad to have you with me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Thanks for taking the time. So I'd like to start by inviting you just to share a little bit about your history, where you come from, your wife and family, your profession, et cetera. Just a little summary so we can get to know you a little bit better.
0: Absolutely. From Mississippi, the great state of Mississippi. Grew up there till I was about 13 or so. Moved to Chicago when I was about 14 years old. So went to high school there. In fact, my conversion started in Mississippi, but ultimately ended up getting baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was 14 in Chicago in the High Park Ward on the south side and that was an incredible experience one dear to my heart and went on to Salt Lake City after graduating from high school went to school at LDS Business College met my wife in 1990 we got married in 94 have a beautiful daughter, and my wife married before, so I have a stepson. And we lived in Salt Lake for several years, started our lives, and just knew that there was something more we wanted to do. So we went to Southern California, and we fell in love, and we currently live in Dana Point. We've been living there now for 20 years, and I am currently the CEO of a pain management practice here in San Diego. So that's kind of a little quick
1: overview. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you so much. So you were raised in Mississippi. Correct, yes. And moved to live with an aunt on the south side of Chicago, where you met the missionaries at 14? Yes. So can you share your experience when you first met the missionaries? And like, how did you find them? And what was their initial reaction to you? You have a great story around that.
0: Yeah, first of all, I wanted to say that I had method missionaries several years earlier in Mississippi. My sister was baptized in 86 in Mississippi. In fact, she's one of the first black members in the state to be baptized there. So I was very familiar with the missionaries. In fact, I became very close with one missionary in Mississippi, but had to leave after my mother passed away. My aunt wanted me to come live with her. So I moved to Chicago and was just walking home from school. And I passed the missionaries. And I goes, oh, those are the missionaries. You know, you recognize the missionaries, right. the elders. You know, you can recognize them anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of raining, And the south side of Chicago can be a little rough, you know, a little tough area. And I kind of started jogging behind them, kind of elders, elders. And the missionary that baptized me, Clayton Smiley, we joke about it to this day. But they kind of started running from me. As if I was trying to mug them or something. Oh no! Yeah, his story is it's a brisk walk. <laughs> the thing that's exciting about that story is, is that literally in Chicago, where there are millions and millions of people, the exact same day, a few hours later, I ran into those exact same missionary on public transportation on a bus, and the rest is history. I think I got baptized like. Two weeks later.
1: Really? Yeah. So, had you ever taken the discussions when you were in Mississippi, or was that just something you did in Chicago?
0: You know what? I had taken the discussions maybe four or five times in Mississippi. So, I already knew the discussions. I knew probably about 75% of what they were teaching me. And the missionaries in the South really set a foundation for it to be an easy transition when I got to Chicago. Oh,
1: good. So, they were watching out for you?
0: Absolutely. And my sister also who was on a mission at the time, was praying. So it, it all came together.
1: Isn't that amazing? And that you, in such a big city, that you would see them again on public transportation.
0: Yeah, I just don't think that was by accident. So that was that was in higher power. So I'm, I'm grateful.
1: Definitely. And it's all about timing. Absolutely. Right? I mean, what was it that attracted you to the church at that time? What was it that made you decide at that time you were ready to receive it and you're ready to make the move to get baptized?
0: Well, I think for for anyone who's searching for love, connection, the church offers that. I mean, I was extremely attracted to the family values. It was very foreign to me to see a situation where you're in a sacrament meeting and their fathers were holding babies and changing diapers, and, and that was just such a new world to me to see the family connection. I was completely blown away. I fell in love. I fell in love with that cultural of the church and what it it offers. Although my lack of the gospel at the time was limited, but I knew something was there. And to the point where that's where I wanted to be, I was extremely comfortable there. And my life has ever changed for that.
1: That's a great story. I mean, I want to quote you from the discussion with the Laguna Niguel state president where you said being born in Mississippi one of the things you learn very quickly is that you're black and that comes with understanding what that means. For me being racially profiled was like eating breakfast. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
0: Well if anyone spent any time in the south you know particularly in the 70s and 80s and and obviously today but but even more so then it was understood that you were a second-class citizen. You spoke when you were spoken to. I saw my father and how he interacted with white people, and which was a very submissive behavior. And so that was just common. That was culturally how it was done. So it was just, you were black, they were white. They had the authority, they had the power. And if you wanted to survive, you needed to behave in such a way that showed a great deal of respect.
1: So that's a pretty scary situation growing up in the deep south like that, where, like you said, you're second-class citizens. So when you come into the church and you're in the south side of Chicago and you're joining this Hyde Park ward, what did that ward look like and how did they receive you as a young black young adult?
0: Yeah, so the Hyde Park ward extremely unique right there in the south side of Chicago, right by the University of Chicago. So it's so culturally diverse. It was amazing. Again, I found myself in a situation where I saw people just being treated like people. I was received extremely. I was embraced. I was loved. It was such an eye-opening experience for me to be in members' homes. And I had never been in someone's home who was white that trusted me with their kids, you know, trusted me to be just there or trusted me with around their wives. All of that was so unique. Looking back on it, it was pretty sad from my point of view that I grew up with such limitations and not understanding that, hey, my heart is pure, my intentions are pure, but the High Park experience from that standpoint was absolutely amazing.
1: So you felt trusted by these white members of the church and probably for the first time, it sounds like. You were in white homes, you were trusted by them, and What did that do for your confidence as a young 14-year-old?
0: You know, it definitely changed the way I saw myself because I started seeing myself, how they saw me, which was just raw. It was probably the first time in my life where I was just raw. And that was different, but very peaceful. And to be judged by your character, not by the color of your skin. And there were some remarkable people there that I hold dear to my heart today.
1: And that's a powerful experience, especially at the age that you were at, where you're really trying to identify who you are and what you want to become and what your abilities are. And if you see that someone is looking out for you and trusts you and they're white and that you have potential and that if they can trust you, that means other people can trust you and, hey, you're a good person. That's... Amazing. I love that story. So the members in the Hyde Park Ward, they were really supporting you during your teenage years, it sounds like. They were there for you, encouraging you.
0: Absolutely. They became my family.
1: And truly, the Ward family. Yes. Yeah. So you've been a member for 33 years, and during your time as a member, have you experienced racism from other church members?
0: You know, I was having that conversation last night with my wife. I do not ever remember personally experiencing racism. Directly from any church members, but I do want to I do want to say something that's important. Oftentimes uh, Racism rears its ugly head when you're in situations when you don't know the person Mm -hmm. And church provides a very safe environment Oftentimes in church when you are investigating the church you're coming with the missionaries So the missionaries are your credibility or when you're at church people tend to be on their best behavior so Experience racism in church, I just think it's very unlikely because of the safety blanket that church actually creates. I think the real question is how many members, once you're outside of church, if you didn't know me, how different would that be? If I was in your neighborhood, parked in my car, or if I was at your grocery store, or if I was on the elevator with you, that's when you experience racism not when you know the person it's when you don't know the person and then they just see the color of your skin
1: right you're out of that safe environment so the workplace where people know who you are and that you're very accomplished and that you're a smart person you're in the church culture where everyone knows who you are i mean you have these safe spots right but when you get out into the elevator And you step in, or you're in the neighborhood, like you're saying, you know, in your car, and people start wondering, okay, what's he doing here? What are his intentions? That's tricky. Extremely. Yeah, that's tough. That systemic racism is real.
0: Very much so. I mean, one of the things as a black man that, again, you learn early is when you're around, you know, white people that don't know you, one of the things that you learn to do is to prove that you are non-threatening because it's such a sensitivity to that of what was being cast in the media, how violent black men can be, how non-trustworthy they can be, and et cetera. And so I've found myself in situations where one of the first things I want to do in a new relationship is to show that I can be trusted and to behave in such a way that I'm non-threatening and so forth. So that's That's the reality of what you have to deal with being black in America.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So you're currently the CEO of Medical Solution Options, which is a pain management medical practice in San Diego, and you've clearly been successful. So how did you navigate racism throughout your professional career? How did you prove yourself in the work world?
0: Well, there's that old saying that you have to work harder. Yeah. And so I took that attitude that in order for me to be successful, I need to work harder. And I am not saying by any means that hey, I'm working harder than every white person out there. So let's be clear, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is that I got to get up every morning and put my pants on and just give it 100% every day. But I do have to do some things that were a little different, at least in my case, where I made sure that I paid everyone on time, if not paid people early, so there could be a trust factor established. Mm-hmm. There would be times when someone would argue with me about exactly how much their check was supposed to be. I didn't want to argue. I just said, well, how much do I owe you? And so to me, that was some trust. Yeah. And so I found myself using those type of tactics to advance my career where I wanted people to be talking about me in such a way that, Hey, that guy's fair. Hey, you can trust what he says and he follows through with what he says. So that was truly important for me because once I established that trust then it seemed to be a lot easier
1: right like you almost had to go above and beyond to prove that you were trustworthy, incredible and reliable paying the bills early, trusting that you know someone who comes to you and says, hey I didn't get paid enough fine we'll take care of it you're avoiding the confrontation and you've built a great reputation for yourself
0: Absolutely there are times I would be <laughs> there are times I'd be interviewing someone for a job. And then in the middle of the interview, I feel like I'm getting an in, uh, interview where it's like, <laughs> so how long have you had this business? Or so do you guys offer direct deposit? And it's like, OK, here we go. You know, it's just the little things that you sense. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you definitely want to build that trust and, and let them know that, hey, relationships are very key in my business.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, in any business, if you have strong relationships with people, and you have established credibility, then people are likely to refer you. Other business leaders are willing to work with you. I mean, that goes a long way. Absolutely. That does. Okay, so you are married to a white woman. So tell us, how did you meet her?
0: Well, we actually met in the High Park ward. She gave me a ride home from church. And just beautiful soul, incredible person. But at the time, she was married. And we became friends. And she moved to Utah. And then I moved to Utah. So now we're about two years later. And we ended up coming across one another. I don't exactly remember how, but she had gone through a divorce. And I'm like, hey, this is my turn.
1: (laughs) I'm stuffing Uh, in.
0: I asked her on a date. Mm -hmm. She accepted, and the rest is history.
1: That's awesome. I mean, and that's another situation it feels like with the missionaries. She gives you the ride home from church, you know, from the Hyde Park ward, and then all of a sudden you meet up again. She's not married, and then things work out beautifully for both of you. So another hand of God right there.
0: Absolutely, without a doubt.
1: So how has having a white wife been an additional support to you as a black man?
0: You know, let me just start by saying is, that she's absolutely incredible. She's extremely sensitive to different injustices that we see in our society today. But she's been like that her entire life. She read the book, Black Like Me, like five times before she was 10 years old. So she's extremely sensitive to these issues and that's just part of who she is. But how has it benefited me? I tell you, just having a wife who has been supportive, someone loving, someone who's willing to listen, Someone who doesn't allow me to make excuses. she's the rock of our family. In society, uh, I oftentimes I've seen where you know, as for as her credibility, I've noticed that if I'm by myself at a church function or, or even a business function, and if I don't know that many people there and I'm starting to work the room, it's a little different energy, particularly if the the room is majority of the room is white. But if my wife is with me, then that's, again, instant credibility that I'm trustworthy, I'm safe, uh, he must behave a certain way. And so people are a lot more comfortable approaching me doing those situations.
1: That's interesting that just the appearance of seeing you with a white woman who is your wife gives that credibility and protection to you.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So that is real. That's interesting.
0: Very much so. It's real. And in fact, I was having the exact conversation with my daughter, who is married, and her husband is white. And she's experiencing kind of the same thing where it's, hey, where are you, Mark? I want that instant credibility. I don't want to try to prove myself, if that makes sense.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, there's a security in that, you know, because when we know your daughter, she's darling, and she's good friends with my daughter and she is well-spoken and articulate and beautiful and sometimes the color of the skin people don't see that as quickly and readily as if someone was white and having a white husband I can see how that would be okay mark step up I'm with him I'm credible I'm credible (laughs) and she's credible on her own But in the culture, sometimes you have to lean on that situation for added credibility, which is sad. Yes, absolutely. But I love that you're honest about that and what the reality of that is like in your relationship and in the society that you live in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's definitely has been my experience. We were in Chicago a few years ago, and Chicago is one of these very, it can be racially intense at different times. and. I found myself without my wife in certain situations, and I saw a situation where a woman grabbed a purse and brought it closer to her as she walked by me and intentionally did not make any eye contact and kind of walked away from me. But a few moments later, that exact same woman gave me a nice smile and made direct eye contact with me, but my wife was, was with me then, and I don't think she even knew I was the same person.
1: Interesting. So just having your wife with you gave her more comfortable feeling to be around you.
0: I would say just in America, oftentimes, and this is so important, is as black people who are navigating in America in the business world or even professionally, it is this, oftentimes white people have to communicate with other white people that you're okay and that you're safe. I'll never forget David Axelrod, words to something that I have felt my entire life. And he said this in 2008. And I remember thinking, wow, I felt that, but I never was able to put my finger on it exactly. And so in 2008, David Axelrod basically said that one of the ways he wanted to introduce Barack Obama on the national stage was to allow some important white people to communicate white America that he was safe. And I thought to myself, Wow. It was the first time I ever heard that. And ever since then, I realized that I have been doing a behavior for many, many years and continue to do it today without really knowing exactly what I was doing until 2008, until David Axelrod and at the time Barack Obama campaign manager actually put words to it.
1: Yeah, almost like you're endorsed by other white people. So that gives you, okay, you can trust this guy. He's credible. Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. And amazing that even for the president of the United States, they had to do that. Yes. (laughs) Think of his position. Pretty
0: crazy, isn't
1: it? Yeah. So during the panel discussion, the state president asked for advice for members about what they can do to help, just to have more understanding about what Black members face. And you had a really powerful answer. You said, ask the question, do you care? If you care, then I say, take the time to get to know someone who is black. Take the time to ask them how they feel. Take the time to serve, because I think if you care, then everything else seems to fall in line. If you care, you can open your heart. You can have empathy toward awful situations that are taking place. You know, let's discuss your response to that powerful question. Okay. I just think caring as a white woman, I personally would hesitate to ask what it feels like to be black, to someone who's black, because it might be received as patronizing or insincere. I would never want them to think, okay, tell me what your life is like being black. I would think they're thinking, what do you know what it's like? You're an affluent white woman. And I would never want to appear patronizing or insincere. So it would make me hesitate to do that. So your invitation allows me and others listening to this podcast to have the courage to ask in an effort to show that we really care.
0: So... I think the do you care is so important because I think oftentimes we as black people, because we experience racism or systemic racism daily, there isn't much space to actually talk about that with our white friends. Because immediately what happens is you're insensitive, this isn't happening, I don't see color, I've never seen you that way, and so forth. And the do you care really means to allow some space, open your heart and take the time and look back at our history. And again, I'll be clear about this. I'm not saying that I want you to feel guilty about anything. I want there to be an acknowledgement that our history is real. I love you today. Some of my best friends are white, but there's a history. And I think sometimes that history get denied or don't want to be addressed. But the fact of the matter is, is that in 1969, we could still not share a public swimming pool together. America hasn't completely recovered from its values. And so the do you care is let's take a look at our history and let's have an honest conversation about where we are
1: today. Yeah. And the progress that's been made, but there's still progress to be made. Absolutely. Yeah, President Nelson released a joint op-ed with the NAACP in which he wrote Solutions will come as we open our hearts to those whose lives are different than our own as we work to build bonds of genuine friendship and as we see each other as the brothers and sisters for we are all children of a loving God. And that's a powerful statement as a the prophet of our church saying, "Hey, not just for the world, but also for our members. Let's open our hearts to those whose lives are different. Let's build those bonds of friendship. Kind of like what you're saying, show you care, take the time, serve each other, open your heart, have empathy. I mean, he's saying the same thing. Yes. So how has your relationship with your Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ helped you on this challenging journey with racism?
0: Oh, wow. I think that's the foundation because I think that spirituality is such a personal thing. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that my Father in Heaven and my Savior loves me 100%, just like everyone else, that's the foundation. And to know that if I'm humble, if I'm willing to pray, that I can actually receive answers just like anyone else. Mm -hmm. To know that He died on the cross for my sins and was resurrected through His grace, I'll be healed. We'll all be healed. So for me, it is truly the foundation that allows me to know that we're all equal, because I truly believe and have a testimony that that's how he sees us, as completely equal, period.
1: Yeah, and that's beautifully said. I want to quote you from the stake Meeting that you did, the panel discussion, you've said, I completely believe that our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ sees us 100% equal, regardless of the color of our skin, which you just said. My hope is that we can get there, that we can get there as a nation, that we can get there as Christians, and that we can get there as a church, because until that happens, we are not serving one another the way that Christ served when He was here. He was not consumed or cared about the color of one's skin. He was concerned about if you are willing to give your heart to his Father. That is beautifully said, Robert. Thank you. Beautifully said. And I think that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. I mean, we are brothers and sisters. We are all children of one loving Heavenly Father. And I think this is a powerful discussion that we had today. And I am so grateful for your participation. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We encourage you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Simply click on that share button wherever you listen to the podcast. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. We read all your comments and it really helps us to grow. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Podcast What Now. We never say goodbye. We say what now. Find out by tuning into our next episode. This has been a What Now podcast production.